no one has been able to pose the problem of language except to the extent that linguists and logicians have first eliminated meaning, and the greatest force of language was only discovered once a work was viewed as a machine, producing certain effects, amenable to a certain use. Malcolm Lowry says of his work, it's anything you want it to be, so long as it works it works too, believe me, as I have found out a machinery.50 but on condition that meaning be nothing other than use, that it become a firm principle only if we have at our disposal imminent criteria capable of determining the legitimate uses, as opposed to the illegitimate ones that relate use instead to a hypothetical meaning and re-establish a kind of transcendence. Analysis term transcendental is precisely the determination of these criteria, imminent to the field of the unconscious, insofar as they are opposed to the transcendent exercises of a what does it mean. Schizoanalysis is at once a transcendental and a materialist analysis. It is critical in the sense that it leads the criticism of Oedipus, or leads Oedipus, to the point of its own self-criticism. It sets out to explore a transcendental unconscious, rather than a metaphysical one, an unconscious that is material rather than ideological, schizophrenic rather than edible, non-figurative rather than imaginary, real rather than symbolic, machinic rather than structural and unconscious, finally, that is molecular, microphysical and micrological rather than molar or gregarious, productive rather than expressive. And it is a matter here of practical principles as directions for the cure. Thus we have already seen how the imminent criteria of desiring production permitted a definition of legitimate uses of synthesis, uses completely distinct from edible uses. And in relation to this desiring production, the edible illegitimate uses seem to us to be multiform, but always to revolve around the same error, and to envelop theoretical and practical paralogisms. In the first place, a partial and non-specific use of the connective synthesis was found to be in opposition to the edible use, itself global and specific. This global specific use was found to have two aspects, parental and conjugal, to which the triangular form of Oedipus and the reproduction of this form corresponded. This use rested upon a paralogism of extrapolation that in fact constituted Oedipus's formal cause and extrapolation whose illegitimate nature weighed on the whole operation, the extraction of a transcendent complete object from the signifying chain, which served as a despotic signifier on which the entire chain thereafter seemed to depend, assigning an element of lack to each position of desire, fusing desire to a law, and engendering the illusion that this loosened up and freed the elements of the chain. In the second place, an inclusive or non-restrictive use of the disjunctive synthesis is in opposition to their edible, exclusive, restrictive use. This restrictive use in its turn has two poles, imaginary and symbolic, since the only choice it permits is between the exclusive symbolic differentiations and the undifferentiated imaginary, correctively determined by Oedipus. This use demonstrates this time how Oedipus proceeds, it demonstrates Oedipus's method, a paralogism of the double bind, the double impasse. Or, in line with a suggestion made by Henry Gobard, would it be better to translate this as double hold, like a full Nelson hold in wrestling, so as to better describe the treatment forced on the unconscious when it is bound at both ends, leaving it no other choice than to respond Oedipus, to cry Oedipus, in sickness as in health, in its crises as in their outcome, in its resolution as in its problem. In any case, the double bind is not the schizophrenic process, 
on the contrary, the double bind is Oedipus insofar as it arrests the motion of the process, or forces it to spin around in the void. In the third place, a nomadic and polyvocal use of the conjunctive synthesis is opposed to the segregative and biunivocal use made of them. There again this biunivocal use, illegitimate from the point of view of the unconscious itself, has what appear to be two moments, first, a moment that is racist, nationalistic, religious, etc., and that, by means of a segregation, constitutes an aggregate of departure that is always presupposed by Oedipus, even if in a totally implicit fashion, next, a familial moment that constitutes the aggregate of destination by means of an application. Whence the third paralogism, the paralogism of application, which fixes the precondition for Oedipus by establishing a set of biunivocal relations between the determinations of the social field and the familial determinations, thereby making possible and inevitable the reduction of libidinal investments to the eternal daddy mommy. We still have not exhausted all the paralogisms that lead the practice of the cure in the direction of a frenzied Oedipalization, a betrayal of desire, the unconscious closeted in a day nursery, a narcissistic machine for arrogant and mouthy little egos, a perpetual absorption of capitalist surplus value, flows of words against flows of money, the interminable story psychoanalysis. The three errors concerning desire are called lack, law, and signifier. It is one and the same error, an idealism that forms a pious conception of the unconscious. And it is futile to interpret these notions in terms of a combinative apparatus, line combinatoire, that makes of lack an empty position and no longer a deprivation, that turns the law into a rule of the game and no longer a commandment, and the signifier into a distributor and no longer a meaning, for these notions cannot be prevented from dragging their theological cortege behind insufficiency of being, guilt, signification. Structural interpretation challenges all beliefs, rises above all images, and from the realm of the mother and the father retains only functions, defines the prohibition and the transgression as structural operations. But what water will cleanse these concepts of their background, their previous existence's religiosity? Scientific knowledge as non-belief is truly the last refuge of belief, and as Nietzsche put it, there never was but one psychology, that of the priest. From the moment lack is reintroduced into desire, all of desiring production is crushed, reduced to being no more than the production of fantasy, but the sign does not produce fantasies, it is a production of the real and a position of desire within reality. From the moment desire is welded again to the law we needn't point out what is known since time began, that there is no desire without law the eternal operation of eternal repression recommences, the operation that closes around the unconscious the circle of prohibition and transgression, white mass and black mass, but the sign of desire is never a sign of the law, it is a sign of strength, puissance. And who would dare use the term law for the fact that desire situates and develops its strength, and that wherever it is, it causes flows to move and substances to be intersected, I am careful not to speak of chemical laws, the word has a moral aftertaste. From the moment desire is made to depend on the signifier, it is put back under the yoke of a despotism whose effect is castration, there where one recognizes the stroke of the signifier itself, but the sign of desire is never signifying, it exists in the thousands of productive breaks flows that never allow themselves to be signified within the unary stroke of castration. 
it is always a point sign of many dimensions, polyvocity as the basis for a punctual semiology. It is said that the unconscious is dark and somber. Reich and Marcuse are often reproached for their Rousseauism, their naturalism, a conception of the unconscious that is thought to be too idyllic. But doesn't one indeed lend to the unconscious horrors that could only be those of consciousness, and of a belief too sure of itself? Would it be an exaggeration to say that in the unconscious there is necessarily less cruelty and terror, and of a different type, than in the consciousness of an heir, a soldier, or a chief of state? The unconscious has its horrors, but they are not anthropomorphic. It is not the slumber of reason that engenders monsters, but vigilant and insomniac rationality. The unconscious is Rousseauistic, being man-nature. And how much malice and ruse there are in Rousseau. Transgression, guilt, castration, are these determinations of the unconscious, or is this the way a priest sees things? Doubtless there are many other forces besides psychoanalysis for oedipalizing the unconscious, rendering it guilty, castrating it. But psychoanalysis reinforces the movement, it invents a last priest. Oedipal analysis imposes a transcendent use on all the syntheses of the unconscious, ensuring their conversion. The practical problem of schizoanalysis is, then, to ensure the contrasting reversion, restoring the syntheses of the unconscious to their imminent use. Deedipalizing, undoing the daddy-mommy spider web, undoing the belief so as to attain the production of desiring machines, and to reach the level of economic and social investments where the militant analysis comes into play. Nothing is accomplished as long as machines are not touched upon. This implies interventions that are in fact very concrete, in place of the benevolent pseudo-neutrality of the Oedipal analyst, who wants and understands only daddy and mommy, we must substitute a malevolent, an openly malevolent activity, your Oedipus is a fucking drag, keep it up and the analysis will be stopped, or else we'll apply a shock treatment to you, stop saying daddy mommy, of course Hamlet lives in you as Werther lives in you, and Oedipus too, and anything you want but you grow. Uterine arms and legs, uterine lips, uterine mustache. In tracing back the memory deaths your ego becomes a sort of mineral theorem which constantly proves the futility of living. Were you born Hamlet? Or did you not rather create the type in yourself? Whether this be so or not, what seems infinitely more important is why revert to myth, 51. If myth is given up, a little joy, a little discovery, is restored to psychoanalysis. For it has become very dismal, very sad, quite interminable, with everything decided in advance. Will it be retorted that the schizo is not joyous either? But doesn't his sadness come from the fact that he can no longer bear the forces of Oedipalization and Hamletization that hem him in on all sides? Better to flee to the body without organs and hide out there, closing himself up in it. The little joy lies in schizophrenization as a process, not in the schizo as a clinical entity. You have pushed a process into a goal. If we made a psychoanalyst enter into the domains of the productive unconscious, he would feel as out of place with his theater as an actress from the Comédie Française in a factory, a priest from the Middle Ages on an assembly line. We must set up units of production, plug in desiring machines. What takes place in this factory, what this process is, its spasms and its glories, its labors and its joys, 
still remain unknown. 7. Social Repression and Psychic Repression We have attempted to analyze the form, the reproduction, the, formal, cause, the method, and the condition of the Oedipal Triangle. But we have postponed the analysis of the real forces, the real causes on which the triangulation depends. The general line of the response is simple, it has been sketched out by Reich, it is social repression, the forces of social repression. This response, however, leaves two problems untouched and makes them even more urgent, on the one hand, the specific relationship between psychic repression and social repression, on the other hand, the particular situation of Oedipus in this social repression psychic repression system. The two problems are obviously linked because, if psychic repression did bear on incestuous desires, it would thereby gain a certain independence and primacy, as a condition for constituting a system of exchange or any society, in relation to social repression, which would then concern only the returns of the psychically repressed in a constituted society. Therefore we should first of all consider the second question, does psychic repressor bear upon the Oedipus complex as an adequate expression of the unconscious? Must we even follow Freud in saying that the Oedipus complex, according to one or the other of its two poles, is either repressed, not without leaving behind traces and returns that will be confronted by the prohibitions, or suppressed, not without being passek onto the children, with whom the same story begins all over again, 52. We wonder if Oedipus in fact expresses desire, if Oedipus is desired, then it is indeed on it that psychic repression comes to bear. Now the Freudian argument is of a nature to leave us wondering, Freud quotes a remark by Sir J. G. Fraser according to which the law only forbids men to do what their instincts incline them to do. Instead of assuming, therefore, from the legal prohibition of incest that there is a natural aversion to incest, we ought rather to assume that there is a natural instinct in favor of it. 53. In other words, if it is prohibited, this is because it is desired there would be no need to prohibit what is not desired. Once again, it is this confidence in the law, the unawareness of the ruses and the procedures of the law, that leaves us wondering. The immortal father of Celine's death on the installment plan, more to credit, cries out, so you want to see me die, eh, is that what you want, speak up? We didn't want anything of the sort, however. We didn't want the train to be daddy, or the station mommy. We only wanted peace and innocence, and to be left alone to machine our little machines, oh desiring production. Of course pieces from the bodies of the mother and the father are taken up in the connections, parental appellations crop up in the disjunctions of the chain, the parents are there as ordinary stimuli of an indifferent nature that trigger the becoming of adventures, of races, and of continents. But what a bizarre Freudian mania to relate to Oedipus what overflows it on every side and from all angles, beginning with the hallucination of books and the delirium of apprenticeships, the teacher as father substitute, and the book as family romance. Freud couldn't abide a simple humorous remark by Jung, to the effect that Oedipus must not really exist, since even the primitive prefers a pretty young woman to his mother or his grandmother. If Jung betrayed everything, it was nevertheless not by way of this remark, which can only suggest that the mother functions as a pretty girl as much as the pretty girl functions as mother, since the main thing for the primitive or the child is to form and put into motion their desiring machines, 
to make flows circulate and to perform breaks in these flows. The law tells us, you will not marry your mother, and you will not kill your father. And we docile subjects say to ourselves, so that's what I wanted. Will it ever be suspected that the law discredits and has an interest in discrediting and disgracing the person it presumes to be guilty, the person the law wants to be guilty and wants to be made to feel guilty? One acts as if it were possible to conclude directly from psychic repression the nature of the repressed, and from the prohibition the nature of what is prohibited. There we have a typical paralogism yet another, a fourth paralogism that we shall have to call displacement. For what really takes place is that the law prohibits something that is perfectly fictitious in the order of desire or of the instincts, so as to persuade its subjects that they had the intention corresponding to this fiction. This is indeed the only way the law has of getting a grip on intention, of making the unconscious guilty. In short, we are not witness here to a system of two terms where we could conclude from the formal prohibition what is really prohibited. Instead we have before us a system of three terms, where this conclusion becomes completely illegitimate. Distinctions must be made, the repressing representation which performs the repression, the repressed representative, on which the repression actually comes to bear, the displaced represented, which gives a falsified apparent image that is meant to trap desire. Such is the nature of Oedipus the sham image. Repression does not operate through Oedipus, nor is it directed at Oedipus. It is not a question of the return of the repressed. Oedipus is a factitious product of psychic repression. It is only the represented, insofar as it is induced by repression. Repression cannot act without displacing desire, without giving rise to a consequent desire, already, all warm for punishment, and without putting this desire in the place of the antecedent desire on which repression comes to bear in principle or in reality, ah, so that's what it was. D. H. Lawrence who does not struggle against Freud in the name of the rights of the ideal, but who speaks by virtue of the flows of sexuality and the intensities of the unconscious, and who is incensed and bewildered by what Freud is doing when he closets sexuality in the Oedipal nursery has a foreboding of this operation of displacement, and protests with all his might, no, Oedipus is not a state of desire and the drives, it is an idea, nothing but an idea that repression inspires in us. Concerning desire, not even a compromise, but an idea in the service of repression, its propaganda, or its propagation. The incest motive is a logical deduction of the human reason, which has recourse to this last extremity, to save itself which first and foremost is a logical deduction made by the human reason, even if unconsciously made, and secondly is introduced into the effective passional sphere, where it now proceeds to serve as a principle for action. This has nothing to do with the active unconscious which sparkles, vibrates, travels. We realize that the unconscious contains nothing ideal, nothing in the least conceptual, and hence nothing in the least personal, since personality, like the ego, belongs to the conscious or mental subjective self. So the first analyses are, or should be, so impersonal that the so-called human relations are not involved. The first relationship is neither personal nor biological a fact which psychoanalysis has not succeeded in grasping 54. Oedipal desires are not at all repressed, nor do they have any reason to be. They are nevertheless in an intimate relationship with psychic repression, but in a different manner. 
Oedipal desires are the bait, the disfigured image by means of which repression catches desire in the trap. If desire is repressed, this is not because it is desire for the mother and for the death of the father, on the contrary, desire becomes that only because it is repressed, it takes on that mask only under the reign of the repression that models the mask for it and plasters it on its face. Besides, it is doubtful that incest was a real obstacle to the establishment of society, as the partisans of an exchangist conception claim. We have seen that there were other obstacles. The real danger is elsewhere. If desire is repressed, it is because every position of desire, no matter how small, is capable of calling into question the established order of a society, not that desire is a social, on the contrary. But it is explosive, there is no desiring machine capable of being assembled without demolishing entire social sectors. Despite what some revolutionaries think about this, desire is revolutionary in its essence desire, not left-wing holidays, and no society can tolerate a position of real desire without its structures of exploitation, servitude and hierarchy being compromised. If a society is identical with its structures and amusing hypothesis then yes, desire threatens its very being. It is therefore of vital importance for a society to repress desire, and even to find something more efficient than repression, so that repression, hierarchy, exploitation and servitude are themselves desired. It is quite troublesome to have to say such rudimentary things, desire does not threaten a society because it is a desire to sleep with the mother, but because it is revolutionary. And that does not at all mean that desire is something other than sexuality, but that sexuality and love do not live in the bedroom of Oedipus, they dream instead of wide open spaces, and cause strange flows to circulate that do not let themselves be stocked within an established order. Desire does not want revolution, it is revolutionary in its own right, as though involuntarily, by wanting what it wants. From the beginning of this study we have maintained both that social production and desiring production are one and the same, and that they have differing regimes, with the result that a social form of production exercises an essential repression of desiring production, and also that desiring production a real desire is potentially capable of demolishing the social form. But what is a real desire, since repression is also desired? How can we tell them apart? We demand the right to a very deliberate analysis. For even in their contrary uses, let us make no mistake about it, the same synthesis are at issue. It is clear what psychoanalysis expects to gain from claiming a link, where Oedipus would be the object of repression, and even its subject through the intermediary of the superego. From this it expects a cultural justification for psychic repression a justification that makes psychic repression move into the foreground and no longer considers the problem of social repression as anything more than secondary from the point of view of the unconscious. That is why critics have been able to observe a conservative or reactionary turning point in Freud, from the moment that he gave an autonomous value to psychic repression as a condition of culture acting against the incestuous drives, Reich goes so far as to say that the crucial turning point of Freudianism, the abandonment of sexuality, comes when Freud accepts the idea of a primary anxiety that supposedly touches off psychic repression in an endogenous fashion. Consider the 1908 article on civilized sexual morality, Oedipus is not yet named here, psychic repression is considered in terms of social repression, 
which gives rise to a displacement and acts on the partial drives insofar as they represent in their own fashion a sort of desiring production, before being exercised against the incestuous or other drives threatening legitimate marriage. But it then becomes evident that, the more the problem of Oedipus and incest comes to occupy center stage, the more psychic repression and its correlates, suppression and sublimation, will be founded on supposedly transcendent requirements of civilization, at the same time that the psychoanalyst plunges deeper into a familialist and ideological vision. We do not need to relate again the reactionary compromises of Freudianism, and even its theoretical surrender, this work has been accomplished several times, in a profound way, rigorously, and with nuances. Point 55 We see no special problem in the possibility of a coexistence of revolutionary, reformist, and reactionary elements at the heart of the same theoretical and practical doctrine. We refuse to play take it or leave it, under the pretext that theory justifies practice, being born from it, or that one cannot challenge the process of cure except by starting from elements drawn from this very cure. As if every great doctrine were not a combined formation, constructed from bits and pieces, various intermingled codes and flux, partial elements and derivatives, that constitute its very life or its becoming. As if we could reproach someone for having an ambiguous relationship with psychoanalysis, without first mentioning that psychoanalysis owes its existence to a relationship, theoretically and practically ambiguous, with what it discovers and the forces that it wields. While the critical study of Freudian ideology has been done, and done well, on the other hand the history of the movement has never even been sketched out, the structure of the psychoanalytic group, its politics, its tendencies and its focal points, its self-applications, its suicides and its follies, the enormous group superego everything that took place on the body of the master. What has come to be called the monumental work of Ernest Jones does not penetrate censorship, it codifies it. And the way the three elements coexisted, the exploratory, pioneering, revolutionary element, whereby desiring production was discovered, the classical cultural element, which reduces everything to a scene from edible theatrical representation, the return to myth, and finally the third element, the most disturbing, a sort of racket thirsting after respectability, which will never have done with getting itself recognized and institutionalized a formidable enterprise of absorption of surplus. Value, with its codification of the interminable cure, its cynical justification of the role of money, and all the pledges it makes to the established order. All these elements were present in Freud, a fantastic Christopher Columbus, a brilliant bourgeois reader of Goethe, Shakespeare, and Sophocles, a masked Al Capone. The strength of Reich consists in having shown how psychic repression depended on social repression. Which in no way implies a confusion of the two concepts, since social repression needs psychic repression precisely in order to form docile subjects and to ensure the reproduction of the social formation, including its repressive structures. But social repression should not be understood by using as a starting point a familial repression coextensive with civilization far from it, it is civilization that must be understood in terms of a social repression inherent to a given form of social production. Social repression bears on desire and not solely on needs or interests only by means of sexual repression. The family is indeed the delegated agent of this psychic repression, insofar as it ensures a mass psychological reproduction of the economic system of a society. 
of course it should not be concluded from this that desire is edible. On the contrary, it is the social repression of desire or sexual repression that is, the stasis of libidinal energy that actualizes Oedipus and engages desire in this requisite impasse, organized by the repressive society. Reich was the first to raise the problem of the relationship between desire and the social field, and went further than Marcuse, who treats the problem lightly. He is the true founder of a materialist psychiatry. Situating the problem in terms of desire, he is the first to reject the explanations of a summary Marxism too quick to say the masses were fooled, mystified. But since he had not sufficiently formulated the concept of desiring production, he did not succeed in determining the insertion of desire into the economic infrastructure itself, the insertion of the drives into social production. Consequently, revolutionary investment seemed to him such that the desire moving within it simply coincided with an economic rationality, as to the reactionary mass investments, they seemed to him to derive from ideology, so that psychoanalysis merely had the role of explaining the subjective, the negative, and the inhibited, without participating directly as psychoanalysis in the positivity of the revolutionary movement or in the desiring creativity. To a certain extent, didn't this amount to a reintroduction of the error or the illusion? The fact remains that Reich, in the name of desire, caused a song of life to pass into psychoanalysis. He denounced, in the final resignation of Freudianism, a fear of life, a resurgence of the ascetic ideal, a cultural broth of bad consciousness. Better to depart in search of the argon, he said to himself, in search of the vital and cosmic element of desire, than to continue being a psychoanalyst under those conditions. No one forgave him this, whereas Freud got full pardon. Reich was the first to attempt to make the analytic machine and the revolutionary machine function together. In the end, he only had his own desiring machines, his paranoiac, miraculous, and celibate boxes, with metallic inner walls lined with cotton and wool. Psychic repression distinguishes itself from social repression by the unconscious nature of the operation and by its result, even the inhibition of revolt has become unconscious, a distinction that expresses clearly the difference in nature between the two repressions. But a real independence cannot be concluded from this. Psychic repression is such that social repression becomes desired, it induces a consequent desire, a faked image of its object, on which it bestows the appearance of independence. Strictly speaking, psychic repression is a means in the service of social repression. What it bears on is also the object of social repression, desiring production. But it in fact implies an original double operation, the repressive social formation delegates its power to an agent of psychic repression, and correlatively the repressed desire is as though masked by the fake displaced image to which the repression gives rise. Psychic repression is delegated by the social formation, while the desiring formation is disfigured, displaced by psychic repression. The family is the delegated agent of psychic repression, or rather the agent delegated to psychic repression, the incestuous drives are the disfigured image of the repressed. The Oedipus complex, the process of Oedipalization, is therefore the result of this double operation. It is in one and the same movement that the repressive social production is replaced by the repressing family, and that the latter offers a displaced image of desiring production that represents the repressed as incestuous familial drives. 
In this way the family slash drives relationship is substituted for the relationship between the two orders of production, in a diversion where the whole of psychoanalysis goes astray. And the interest of such an operation, from the point of view of social production, becomes evident, for the latter could not otherwise ward off desire's potential for revolt and revolution. By placing the distorting mirror of incest before desire, that's what you wanted, isn't it? Desire is shamed, stupefied, it is placed in a situation without exit, it is easily persuaded to deny itself in the name of the more important interests of civilization, what if everyone did the same, what if everyone married his mother or kept his sister for himself, there would no longer be any differentiation, any exchanges possible. We must act quickly and soon. Incest, a slandered shallow stream. Although we can see social production's interest in such an operation, it is less clear what makes this operation possible from the point of view of desiring production itself. We do have, however, the elements of a response. Social production would need at its disposal, on the recording surface of the socius, an agent that is also capable of acting on, of inscribing the recording surface of desire. Such an agent exists, the family. It belongs essentially to the recording of social production, as a system of reproduction of the producers. And doubtless, at the other pole, the recording of desiring production on the body without organs is brought about through a genealogical network that is not familial, parents only intervene here as partial objects, flows, signs, and agents of a process that outflanks them on all sides. At most, the child innocently relates to his parents some part of the astonishing productive experience he is undergoing with his desire, but this experience is not related to them as such. Yet this is precisely where the operation arises. Under the precocious action of social repression, the family slips into and interferes with the network of desiring genealogy, it assumes the task of alienating the entire genealogy, it confiscates the numen, but see here, God is daddy. The desiring experience is treated as if it were intrinsically related to the parents, and as if the family were its supreme law. Partial objects are subjected to the notorious law of totality unity acting as lacking. The disjunctions are subjected to the alternative of the undifferentiated or exclusion. The family is therefore introduced into the production of desire and will perform a displacement, an unparalleled repression of desire commencing with the earliest age of the child. Social production delegates the family to psychic repression. And if the family is able in this manner to slip into the recording of desire, it is because the body without organs on which this recording is accomplished already exercises on its own account, as we have seen, a primal repression of desiring production. It falls to the family to profit from this, and to superimpose the repression that is properly termed secondary, this being a function delegated to the family or one to which the family is delegated. Psychoanalysis has clearly demonstrated the difference between these two repressions, but has not shown the scope of this difference or the distinction between their respective regimes. That is why psychic repression in the strict sense does not content itself with repressing real desiring production, but offers a displaced apparent image of the repressed, by substituting a familial recording for the recording of desire. Desiring production taken as a whole does not assume the well-known Oedipal figure except in the familial translation of its recording. Translation Betrayal 
At times we say that Oedipus is nothing, almost nothing, within the order of desiring production, even in the child, at other times we say that it is everywhere, in the enterprise of domesticating the unconscious, of representing desire and the unconscious. To be sure, we have never dreamed of saying that psychoanalysis invented Oedipus. Everything points in the opposite direction, the subjects of psychoanalysis arrive already Oedipalized, they demand it, they want more. News flash, Stravinsky declares before dying, my misfortune, I am sure of it, came from my father's being so distant with me and from the small amount of affection shown me by my mother. So I decided that one day I would show them. If even artists give in to this, it would be a mistake to stand on ceremony and hold to the ordinary scruples of a diligent psychoanalyst. If a musician tells us that music does not attest to active and conquering forces, but to reactive forces, to reactions to daddy-mommy, we have only to play again on a paradox dear to Nietzsche, while barely modifying it, Freud as musician. No, psychoanalysts invent nothing, though they have invented much in another way, and have legislated a lot, reinforced a lot, injected a lot. All that psychoanalysts do is to reinforce the movement, they add a last burst of energy to the displacement of the entire unconscious. What they do is merely to make the unconscious speak according to the transcendent uses of synthesis imposed on it by other forces, global persons, the complete object, the great phallus, the terrible undifferentiated of the imaginary, symbolic differentiations, segregation. What psychoanalysts invent is only the transference, a transference Oedipus, a consulting room Oedipus of Oedipus, especially noxious and virulent, but where the subject finally has what he wants, and sucks away at his Oedipus on the full body of the analyst. And that's already too much. But Oedipus takes shape in the family, not in the analyst's office, which merely acts as the last territoriality. And Oedipus is not made by the family. The Oedipal uses of synthesis, Oedipalization, triangulation castration, all refer to forces a bit more powerful, a bit more subterranean than psychoanalysis, than the family, than ideology, even joined together. There we have all the forces of social production, reproduction, and repression. This can be explained by the simple truth that very powerful forces are required to defeat the forces of desire, lead them to resignation, and substitute everywhere reactions of the daddy-mommy type for what is essentially active, aggressive, artistic, productive, and triumphant in the unconscious itself. It is in this sense, as we have seen, that Oedipus is an application, and the family a delegated agent. Even by application it is hard, it is difficult for a child to live and experience himself as an angle. Set and font. Ilnst pala. Ilnst chu un angle. Un angle avenir. Etilny pa d angle. Or ce mon du permir s justament ce ki doit sn aller, se ce mon de double double. En etata de sunyan constant. En volant de unification constant aussi. Otter du kel tourne tout le system de ce monde. Malignement soutenu par la plus sombre organisation. 8. Neurosis and Psychosis In 1924 Freud proposed a simple criterion for distinguishing between neurosis and psychosis, 
in neurosis the ego obeys the requirements of reality and stands ready to repress the drives of the id whereas in psychosis the ego is under the sway of the id ready to break with reality freud's ideas often took quite some time before making their way into france not this one however that same year Capgras and Carret presented a case of schizophrenia with a delusion of doubles, where the patient manifested a strong hatred for her mother and an incestuous desire for her father, but under conditions of reality loss where the parents were lived as false parents or doubles. From this they drew the illustration of the inverse relationship, in neurosis the object function of reality is preserved, but on condition that the causal complex be repressed, in psychosis the complex invades consciousness and becomes its object, at the price of a repression that now bears on reality itself or the function of the real. Doubtless Freud was merely insisting on the schematic character of the distinction, for the rupture is also found in neurosis with the return of the repressed, hysterical amnesia, obsessional cancellation, while in psychosis a regaining of reality appears along with the delirious reconstruction. The fact remains that Freud never dropped this simple distinction. Point 56 and it seems important that, following an original path, Freud encounters again an idea dear to traditional psychiatry, that madness is fundamentally linked to a loss of reality. Thus there is a convergence with the psychiatric elaboration of the notions of dissociation and autism. Hence the reason, perhaps, for the rapid diffusion that the Freudian account enjoyed. What interests us is the precise role of the Oedipus complex in this convergence. For if it is true that the familial themes often erupt into the psychotic consciousness, we would be all the more surprised in line with a remark by Lacan if Oedipus were in fact discovered in neurosis where it is supposed to be latent, rather than in psychosis where it is held to be patent. Point 57 But isn't it true instead that, in psychosis, the familial complex appears precisely as a stimulus whose quality is a matter of indifference, a simple inductor not playing the role of organizer, where the intensive investments of reality bear on something totally different, the social, historical, and cultural fields. Oedipus simultaneously invades consciousness and dissolves into itself, testifying to its incapacity to be an organizer. Once this is admitted, it is enough to measure psychosis against this Fuchs standard enough to lead it to this false criterion, Oedipus to obtain the loss of reality effect. This is not an abstract operation, an Oedipal organization is imposed on the psychotic, though for the sole purpose of assigning the lack of this organization in the psychotic, in his very body. It is an exercise in naked flesh, in the depths of the soul. The psychotic reacts with autism and the loss of reality. Could it be that the loss of reality is not the effect of the schizophrenic process, but the effect of its forced oedipalization, that is to say, its interruption? Must we correct what we were saying a little earlier, and suppose that some tolerate oedipalization less well than others? Thus the schizo would not be ill within the Oedipus complex, from an Oedipus arising all the more in his hallucinated consciousness as he lacked it in the symbolic organization of his unconscious. On the contrary, he is ill because of the oedipalization to which he is made to submit the most somber organization and which he can no longer tolerate, he who has gone on a distant journey. As though one were constantly bringing back home the person capable of setting whole continents and cultures adrift. He is not suffering from a divided self or a shattered Oedipus, but on the contrary, from having been brought back to everything he had left.
a drop in intensity to the body without organs equals zero, autism, the schizo has no other means of reacting to this blocking of all his investments of reality, the barriers placed before him by the Oedipal system of social and psychic repression. As Lang says, they are interrupted in their journey. They have lost reality but when did they lose it? During the journey, or during the interruption of the journey. Hence another possible formulation of an inverse relationship, there would be something like two groups, the psychotics and neurotics, those who do not tolerate edipalization, and those who tolerate it and are even content with it and evolve within it. Those on whom the Oedipal imprint does not take, and those on whom it does. I believe my friends cast off in a group at the start of the new age, with forces for a practical explosion that thrust them into a paternalistic deviation that I find depraved. A second group of loners, of which I am a part, doubtless constituted by centers of Kalarbuns, was deprived of any possibility of individual success at the moment they were engaged in laborious studies in innate science. With regard to them, my rebellion against the paternalism of the first group placed me from the second year in a socially difficult position that was growing more and more suffocating. So, do you believe these two groups are capable of being joined? I am not too angry with these bastards of virile paternalism, I am not vindictive. In any case, if I have won, there will be no more struggles between the father and the son. I am speaking of God's people, naturally, not of those close to him who take themselves for his people 58. It is the recording of desire on the increate body without organs, and the familial recording on the socius, that are in opposition throughout the two groups. The innate science in psychosis and the neurotic experimental sciences. The schizoid eccentric circle and the neurosis triangle. On a more general level, it is the two kinds of use made of synthesis that are in opposition. On the one hand there are the desiring machines, and on the other the Oedipal narcissistic machine. In order to understand the details of this struggle, it must be borne in mind that the family relentlessly operates on desiring production. Inscribing itself into the recording process of desire, clutching at everything, the family performs a vast appropriation of the productive forces, it displaces and reorganizes in its own fashion the entirety of the connections and the hiatuses that characterize the machines of desire. It reorganizes them all along the lines of the universal castration that conditions the family itself, a dead rat's ass, said Artaud, suspended from the ceiling of the sky, but it also redistributes these breaks in accordance with its own laws and the requirements of social production. The inscription performed by the family follows the pattern of its triangle, by distinguishing what belongs to the family from what does not. It also cuts inwardly, along the lines of differentiation that form global persons, there's daddy, there's mommy, there you are, and then there's your sister. Cut into the flow of milk here, it's your brother's turn, don't take a crap here, cut into the stream of shit over there. Retention is the primary function of the family, it is a matter of learning what elements of desiring production the family is going to reject, what it is going to retain, what it is going to direct along the dead-end roads leading to its own undifferentiated, the miasma, and what on the contrary it is going to lead down the paths of a contagious and reproducible differentiation. For the family creates at the same time its disgraces and its honors, the non-differentiation of its neurosis and the differentiation of its ideal, 
which are distinguishable only in appearance. While this is taking place, what is desiring production doing? The retained elements do not enter into the new use of synthesis that imposes such a profound change on them without causing the whole triangle to reverberate. The desiring machines are at the door, they make everything shake when they enter. Moreover, what does not enter causes perhaps even more vibrations to be felt. The desiring machines reintroduce or attempt to reintroduce their deviant cuts and breaks. The child feels the task required of him. But what is to be put into the triangle, how are selections to be made? The father's nose or the mother's ear will that do, can that be retained, will that constitute a good edible incision? And the bicycle horn? What is part of the family? It is the triangle's job to vibrate, to resonate, under the pressure of what it retains as much as what it thrusts aside. Resonance here again, either muffled or public, disgraceful or proud is the family's second function. The family is at the same time an anus that retains, a voice that resounds, and a mouth that consumes, its very own three synth essays, since it is a matter of connecting desire to the ready-made objects of social production. Go by Madeleine's in Comray if you really want to feel the vibrations. We now come to the realization that the simple opposition between the two groups is inadequate, an opposition that would allow one to define neurosis as an intraedible disorder, and psychosis as an extraedible escape. It is not even enough to state that the two groups are capable of being joined. Rather it is the possibility of discriminating directly between the two that creates the difficulty. How can we distinguish between the pressure that familial reproduction exercises on desiring production, and the pressure that desiring production exercises on familial reproduction? The Oedipal triangle vibrates and trembles, but is this in terms of the hold over the machines of desire that it constantly guarantees itself, or in terms of these machines that escape the Oedipal imprint and cause the triangle to release its grip? Where does the resonance of the triangle reach its limit? A familial romance expresses an effort to save the Oedipal genealogy, but it also expresses a free thrust of non-Oedipal genealogy. Fantasies are never pregnant forms, but border or frontier phenomena ready to cross over to one side or the other. In short, Oedipus is strictly undecidable. It can be found everywhere all the more readily for being undecidable, and in this sense it is correct to say that Oedipus is strictly good for nothing. Let us turn to the beautiful story of Gerard de Nerval, he wants orally, his fondest love, to be the same as Adrian, the little girl of his childhood, he perceives them as identical. 59 and Orly and Adrian, both in one, are his mother. Will it be said that the identification as a perceptual identity is here a sign of psychosis? One then encounters the criterion of reality, the complex invades the psychotic consciousness only at the price of a rupture with the real, whereas in neurosis the identity remains that of unconscious representations and does not compromise perception. But what is there to gain from inscribing everything in Oedipus, even psychosis? One step further and orally, Adrian and the mother are the virgin. Nerval seeks the point where the vibration of the triangle is at its limit. You are simply seeking for drama, says orally. Everything is not inscribed in Oedipus without everything at its extreme fleeing beyond the reach of Oedipus. These identifications were not identifications with persons from the viewpoint of perception, 
but identifications of names with regions of intensity that provide the impetus toward other still more intense regions, stimuli of one sort or another that set in motion another journey altogether, stasis that prepare for other breakthroughs, other movements where the mother is no longer encountered, but the Virgin and God, and twice I have crossed and conquered the Akiran 60. Thus the schizo will accept the reduction of everything to the mother, since it is of no importance whatsoever, he is sure of being able to make everything rise again from the mother, and to keep for his own secret use all the virgins that had been placed there. Everything can be converted into neurosis, or warped out of shape into psychosis, it is therefore not in this fashion that the question must be posed. It would be inaccurate to maintain an edible interpretation for the neuroses, and to reserve an extra edible explanation for the psychoses. There are not two groups, there is no difference in nature between neuroses and psychoses. For in any case desiring production is the cause, the ultimate cause of both the psychotic subversions that shatter Oedipus or overwhelm it, and of the neurotic reverberations that constitute it. Such a principle takes on its full meaning if it is related to the problem of actual factors. One of the most important points of psychoanalysis was the evaluation of the role of these actual factors, even in neurosis, insofar as they are distinguishable from the familial infantile factors, all the major dissensions were linked to this evaluation. The difficulties bore on several aspects. First, the nature of these factors, were they somatic, social, metaphysical? Were they the famous problems of living, through which a very pure desexualized idealism was reintroduced into psychoanalysis? In the second place, the modality of these factors, did they act in a negative, privative fashion, by mere frustration? Finally, their moment, their own time, was it not self-evident that the actual factor arose afterward, and signified recent, in opposition to the infantile or the oldest factor that could be sufficiently explained by the familial complex? Even a writer like Reich so careful to situate desire in relation to the forms of social production, demonstrating thereby that there is no psychoneurosis that is not also an actual neurosis continues to present the actual factors as acting by means of a repressive deprivation, the sexual stasis, and as arising afterward. Which leads him to maintain a kind of diffuse Oedipalism, since the stasis or the actual privative factor only defines the energy of the neurosis, but not the content that for its own part refers to the infantile Oedipal conflict this old conflict becoming reactivated by the actual stasis. But the Oedipalists are not saying anything different from this when they remark that an actual deprivation or frustration cannot be experienced except in the midst of an older internal qualitative conflict, which blocks not merely the roads prohibited by reality, but also those that reality leaves open and that the ego forbids itself in its turn, the double impasse formula could one find examples illustrating the diagram of actual neuroses in the prisoner or the concentration camp victim. Or the worker harassed by work. It is not certain that they would furnish a large quota. Our systematic tendency is not to accept the evident iniquities of reality without taking stock of them, without trying to disclose in what sense the disorder of the world is manifested in the subjective disorder, even if it is, with the passing of time inscribed within more or less irreversible structures 61. We understand this sentence, but can't help finding its tone disturbing. The following choice is imposed on us, 
either the actual factor is conceived in a totally exterior privative fashion, which is an impossibility, or it descends into an internal qualitative conflict that is necessarily understood in relation to Oedipus. Oedipus, the fountainhead where the psychoanalyst washes his hands of the world's iniquities. In an altogether different direction, if we consider the idealist deviations of psychoanalysis, we see in them an interesting attempt at giving the actual factors a status other than ulterior or privative. This came about as two concerns were found to be linked in an apparent paradox, for example in Jung, the concern for curtailing the interminable cure by addressing oneself to the present or actual state of the disorder, and the concern for going further than Oedipus, even further than the pre-Oedipal, for going much further back as if what was most actual was also the most primary, the shortest, the furthest removed. Jung presents his archetypes as actual factors that extend in fact beyond the familial images in the transference, as well as being archaic factors infinitely older and from an order of time which is not that of the infantile factors themselves. But nothing has been gained thereby, since the actual factor ceases to be privative only provided it enjoys the rights of the ideal, and does not cease to be an afterward except by becoming a beyond, which must be signified anagogically by Oedipus instead of depending on it analytically. This necessarily results in the reintroduction of the afterward in the temporal difference, as the astonishing distribution proposed by Jung attests, for the young, whose problems concern the family and love, Freud's method. For those less young, whose problems have to do with social adaptation, Adler. And Jung for the adults and the old people, whose problems have to do with the ideal point 62 and we have seen what remains common to Freud and Jung, the unconscious always measured against myths, and not against the units of production, although the measuring is done in two contrary directions. But what does it matter, after all, if morality or religion find an analytical and regressive meaning in Oedipus, or if Oedipus finds an anagogical and perspective meaning in morality or religion? We maintain that the cause of the disorder, neurosis, or psychosis, is always in desiring production, in its relation to social production, in their different or conflicting regimes, and the modes of investment that desiring production performs in the system of social production. The actual factor is desiring production insofar as it is caught up in this relationship, this conflict, and these modalities. Nor is this factor either ulterior or privative. Being constitutive of the full life of desire, it is contemporary with the most tender age, and it accompanies this life with every step. It does not arise after Oedipus, it in no way presupposes an Oedipal organization, nor a pre-Oedipal pre-organization. On the contrary, it is Oedipus that depends on desiring production, either as a stimulus of one form or another, a simple inductor through which the ano-Oedipal organization of desiring production is formed, beginning with early childhood, or as an effect of the psychic and social repression imposed on desiring production by social reproduction by means of the family. The term actual is not used because it designates what is most recent, and because it would be opposed to former or infantile, it is used in terms of its difference with respect to virtual. And it is the Oedipus complex that is virtual, either inasmuch as it must be actualized in a neurotic formation as a derived effect of the actual factor, or inasmuch as it is dismembered and dissolved in a psychotic formation as the direct effect of this same factor. 
it is indeed in this sense that the idea of the afterward seemed to us to be a final paralogism in psychoanalytic theory and practice, active desiring production, in its very process, invests from the beginning a constellation of somatic, social, and metaphysical relations that do not follow after Oedipal psychological relations, but that on the contrary will be applied to the underlying Oedipal constellation defined by reaction, or else will exclude this constellation from the field of investment constituting their activity. Undecidable, virtual, reactive, or reactional, reactional, such as Oedipus. It is only a reactional formation, a formation that results from a reaction to desiring production. It is a serious mistake to consider this formation in isolation, abstractly, independently of the actual factor that coexists with it and to which it reacts. Yet this is what psychoanalysis does when it closets itself in Oedipus, and determines its progressions and regressions in terms of Oedipus, or even in relationship to it, thus the idea of pre-Oedipal regression, by means of which one sometimes attempts to characterize psychosis. It is like a Cartesian devil, the regressions and progressions are made only within the artificially closed vessel of Oedipus, and in reality depend on a state of forces that is changing, yet always actual and contemporary, within ano-Oedipal desiring production. Desiring production has solely an actual existence, progressions and regressions are merely the effectuations of a virtually that is always fulfilled as perfectly as it can be by virtue of the states of desire. Rarely have psychiatrists and psychoanalysts been able to establish a really inspired direct relationship with either child or adult schizophrenics, Gisela Panko and Bruno Bettelheim break new ground in this area by the force of their theory and the efficacy of their therapy. It is not by chance that both of them call into question the notion of regression. Taking the example of the bodily cares administered to a schizophrenic massages, baths, Swatings Gisela Panko asks if it is a matter of reaching the invalid at the point of his regression, in order to give him indirect symbolic satisfactions that would allow him to resume a progression, to take up a progressive pace. It is not at all a question, she says, of administering care that the schizophrenic presumably did not receive when he was a baby. It is a question of giving the patient tactile and other bodily sensations that lead him to a recognition of the limits of his body. It is a question of the recognition of an unconscious desire, and not of this desire's satisfaction. 63. Recognizing the desire is tantamount to setting desiring production back into motion on the body without organs, in the very place to which the schizo had retreated in order to silence and suffocate this production. This recognition of desire, this position of desire, this sign refers to an order of real and actual productivity that is not to be confused with an indirect or symbolic satisfaction, and that, in its stops as in its starts, is as distinct from a pre-Oedipal regression as from a progressive restoration of Oedipus. 9. The process. Between neurosis and psychosis there is no difference in nature, species, or group. Neurosis can no more be explained Oedipally than can psychosis. It is rather the contrary, neurosis explains Oedipus. Then how do we conceive of the relationship between psychosis and neurosis? Everything changes depending on whether we call psychosis the process itself, or on the contrary, an interruption of the process, and what type of interruption. Schizophrenia as a process is desiring production, but it is this production as it functions at the end, as the limit of social production determined by the conditions of capitalism.
it is our very own malady, modern man's sickness. The end of history has no other meaning. In it the two meanings of process meet, as the movement of social production that goes to the very extremes of its deterritorialization, and as the movement of metaphysical production that carries desire along with it and reproduces it in a new earth. The desert grows. The sign is near. The schizo carries along the decoded flows, makes them traverse the desert of the body without organs, where he installs his desiring machines and produces a perpetual outflow of acting forces. He has crossed over the limit, the skis, which maintain the production of desire always at the margins of social production, tangential and always repelled. The schizo knows how to leave, he has made departure into something as simple as being born or dying. But at the same time his journey is strangely stationary, in place. He does not speak of another world, he is not from another world, even when he is displacing himself in space, his is a journey in intensity, around a desiring machine that is erected here and remains here. For here is the desert propagated by our world, and also the new earth, and the machine that hums, around which the schizos revolve, planets for a new sun. These men of desire or do they not yet exist, are like Zarathustra. They know incredible sufferings, vertigos, and sicknesses. They have their specters. They must reinvent each gesture. But such a man produces himself as a free man, irresponsible, solitary, and joyous, finally able to say and do something simple in his own name, without asking permission, a desire lacking nothing, a flux that overcomes barriers and codes, a name that no longer designates any ego whatever. He has simply ceased being afraid of becoming mad. He experiences and lives himself as the sublime sickness that will no longer affect him. Here, what is, what would a psychiatrist be worth? In the whole of psychiatry only Jaspers, then Lang have grasped what process signified, and its fulfillment and so escaped the familialism that is the ordinary bed and board of psychoanalysis and psychiatry. If the human race survives, future men will, I suspect, look back on our enlightened epoch as a veritable age of darkness. They will presumably be able to savor the irony of this situation with more amusement than we can extract from it. The laughs on us. They will see that what we call schizophrenia was one of the forms in which, often through quite ordinary people, the light began to break through the cracks in our all-too-closed minds. Madness need not be all breakdown. It may also be breakthrough. The person going through ego loss or transcendental experiences may or may not become in different ways confused. Then he might legitimately be regarded as mad. But to be mad is not necessarily to be ill, notwithstanding that in our culture the two categories have become confused. From the alienated starting point of our pseudo-sanity, everything is equivocal. Our sanity is not true sanity. Their madness is not true madness. The madness of our patients is an artifact of the destruction wreaked on them by us and by them on themselves. Let no one suppose that we meet true madness any more than that we are truly sane. The madness that we encounter in patients is a gross travesty, a mockery, a grotesque caricature of what the natural healing of that estranged integration we call sanity might be. True sanity entails in one way or another the dissolution of the normal ego. The visit to London is our visit to Pythia. Turner is there. Looking at his paintings, 
one understands what it means to scale the wall, and yet to remain behind, to cause flows to pass through, without knowing any longer whether they are carrying us elsewhere or flowing back over us already. The paintings range over three periods. If the psychiatrist were allowed to speak here, he could talk about the first two, although they are in fact the most reasonable. The first canvases are of end-of-the-world catastrophes, avalanches, and storms. That's where Turner begins. The paintings of the second period are somewhat like the delirious reconstruction, where the delirium hides, or rather where it is on a par with a lofty technique inherited from Poussin, Lorraine, or the Dutch tradition, the world is reconstructed through archaism having a modern function. But something incomparable happens at the level of the paintings of the third period, in the series Turner does not exhibit, but keeps secret. It cannot even be said that he is far ahead of his time, there is here something ageless, and that comes to us from an eternal future, or flees toward it. The canvas turns in on itself, it is pierced by a hole, a lake, a flame, a tornado, an explosion. The themes of the preceding paintings are to be found again here, their meaning changed. The canvas is truly broken, sundered by what penetrates it. All that remains is a background of gold and fog, intense, intensive, traversed in depth by what has just sundered its breadth, the skis. Everything becomes mixed and confused, and it is here that the breakthrough not the breakdown occurs. Strange Anglo-American literature, from Thomas Hardy, from D. H. Lawrence to Malcolm Lowry, from Henry Miller to Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, men who know how to leave, to scramble the codes, to cause flows to circulate, to traverse the desert of the body without organs. They overcome a limit, they shatter a wall, the capitalist barrier. And of course they fail to complete the process, they never cease failing to do so. The neurotic impasse again closes the daddy-mommy of Oedipalization, America, the return to the native land or else the perversion of the exotic territorialities, then drugs, alcohol, or worse still, an old fascist dream. Never has delirium oscillated more between its two poles. But through the impasses and the triangles a schizophrenic flow moves, irresistibly, sperm, river, drainage, inflamed genital mucus, or a stream of words that do not let themselves be coded, a libido that is too fluid, too viscous, a violence against syntax, a concerted destruction of the signifier, nonsense erected as a flow, polyvocity that returns to haunt all relations. How poorly the problem of literature is put, starting from the ideology that it bears, or from the co-option of it by a social order. People are co-opted, not works, which will always come to awake a sleeping youth, and which never cease extending their flame. As for ideology, it is the most confused notion because it keeps us from seizing the relationship of the literary machine with a field of production, and the moment when the emitted sign breaks through this form of the content that was attempting to maintain the sign within the order of the signifier. Yet it has been a long time since Engels demonstrated, already apropos of Balzac, how an author is great because he cannot prevent himself from tracing flows and causing them to circulate, flows that split asunder the Catholic and despotic signifier of his work, and that necessarily nourish a revolutionary machine on the horizon. That is what style is, or rather the absence of style asyntactic, agrammatical, 
the moment when language is no longer defined by what it says, even less by what makes it a signifying thing, but by what causes it to move, to flow, and to explode desire. For literature is like schizophrenia, a process and not a goal, a production, and not an expression. Here again, Oedipalization is one of the most important factors in the reduction of literature to an object of consumption conforming to the established order, and incapable of causing anyone harm. It is not a question here of the personal Oedipalization of the author and his readers, but of the Oedipal form to which one attempts to enslave the work itself, to make of it this minor expressive activity that secretes ideology according to the dominant codes. The work of art is supposed to inscribe itself in this fashion between the two poles of Oedipus, problem, and solution, neurosis and sublimation, desire, and truth the one regressive, where the work hashes out and redistributes the non-resolved conflicts of childhood, and the other perspective, by which the work invents the paths leading toward a new solution concerning the future of man. It is said that the work is constituted by a conversion interior to itself as cultural object. From this point of view, there is no longer even any need for applying psychoanalysis to the work of art, since the work itself constitutes a successful psychoanalysis, a sublime transference with exemplary collective virtualities. The hypocritical warning resounds, a little neurosis is good for the work of art, good material, but not psychosis, especially not psychosis, we draw a line between the eventually creative neurotic aspect, and the psychotic aspect, alienating and destructive. As if the great voices, which were capable of performing a breakthrough in grammar and syntax, and of making all language a desire, were not speaking from the depths of psychosis, and as if they were not demonstrating for our benefit an eminently psychotic and revolutionary means of escape. It is correct to measure established literature against an Oedipal psychoanalysis, for this literature deploys a form of superego proper to it, even more noxious than the non-written superego. Oedipus is in fact literary before being psychoanalytic. There will always be a Breton against Artaud, a Goethe against Lenz, a Schiller against Hold Erlen, in order to superegoize literature and tell us, careful, go no further. No errors for lack of tact. Werther yes, Lenz no. The Oedipal form of literature is its commodity form. We are free to think that there is finally even less dishonesty in psychoanalysis than in the established literature, since the neurotic pure and simple produces a solitary work, irresponsible, illegible, and non-marketable, which on the contrary must pay not only to be read, but to be translated and reduced. He makes at least an economic error, an error intact, and does not spread his values. R. Todd puts it well, all writing is so much pig shit that is to say, any literature that takes itself as an end or sets ends for itself, instead of being a process that plows the crap of being and its language, transports the weak, the aphasiacs, the illiterate. At least spare us sublimation. Every writer is a sellout. The only literature is that which places an explosive device in its package, fabricating a counterfeit currency, causing the superego and its form of expression to explode, as well as the market value of its form of content. But some reply, Artaud does not belong to the realm of literature, he is outside it because he is schizophrenic. Others retort, he is not schizophrenic, since he belongs to literature, 
and the most important literature at that, the textual. Both groups hold at least one thing in common, they subscribe to the same puerile and reactionary conception of schizophrenia, and the same marketable neurotic conception of literature. A shrewd critic writes, one need understand nothing of the concept of the signifier in order to declare absolutely that Artaud's language is that of a schizophrenic, the psychotic produces an involuntary discourse, fettered, subjugated, therefore in all respects the contrary of textual writing. But what is this enormous textual archaism, the signifier, that subjects literature to the mark of castration and sanctifies the two aspects of its edible form? And who told this shrewd critic that the discourse of the psychotic was involuntary, fettered, subjugated? Not that it is more nearly the opposite, thank God. But these very oppositions are singularly lacking in relevance. Artaud makes a shambles of psychiatry, precisely because he is schizophrenic and not because he is not. Artaud is the fulfillment of literature, precisely because he is schizophrenic and not because he is not. It has been a long time since he broke down the wall of the signifier, Artaud the schizo. From the depths of his suffering and his glory, he has the right to denounce what society makes of the psychotic in the process of decoding the flows of desire, Van Gogh, the man suicide by society, but also what it makes of literature when it opposes literature to psychosis in the name of a neurotic or perverse recoding, Lewis Carroll, or the coward of Bell's Lettres. Very few accomplish what Lang calls the breakthrough of this schizophrenic wall or limit, quite ordinary people, nevertheless. But the majority draw near the wall and back away horrified. Better to fall back under the law of the signifier, marked by castration, triangulated in Oedipus. So they displace the limit, they make it pass into the interior of the social formation, between the social production and reproduction that they invest, and the familial reproduction that they fall back on, to which they apply all the investments. They make the limit pass into the interior of the domain thus described by Oedipus, between the two poles of Oedipus. They never stop involuting and evolving between these two poles. Oedipus as the last rock, and castration as the cavern, the ultimate territoriality, although reduced to the analyst's couch, rather than the decoded flows of desire that flee, slip away, and take us where? Such is neurosis, the displacement of the limit, in order to create a little colonial world of one's own. But others want virgin lands, more truly exotic, families more artificial, societies more secret that they design and institute along the length of the wall, in the locales of perversion. Still others, sickened by the utensility, elustensilite, of Oedipus, but also by the shoddiness and aestheticism of perversions, reach the wall and rebound against it, sometimes with an extreme violence. Then they become immobile, silent, they retreat to the body without organs, still a territoriality, but this time totally desert-like, where all desiring production is arrested, or where it becomes rigid, feigning stoppage, psychosis. These catatonic bodies have fallen into the river like lead weights, immense transfixed hippopotamuses who will not come back up to the surface. They have entrusted all their forces to primal repression, in order to escape the system of social and psychic repression that fabricates neurotics. But a more naked repression befalls them that declares them identical with the hospital schizo, the great autistic one, 
the clinical entity that lacks Oedipus. Why the same word, schizo, to designate both the process insofar as it goes beyond the limit, and the result of the process insofar as it runs up against the limit and pounds endlessly away there? Why the same word to designate both the eventual breakthrough and the possible breakdown, and all the transitions, the intrications of the two extremes? In point of fact, of the three preceding adventures, the adventure of psychosis is the most intimately related to the process, in the sense of Jasper's demonstration, when he shows that the demonic ordinarily repressed erupts by means of such a state, or gives rise to such states, which endlessly run the risk of making it topple into breakdown and disintegration. We no longer know if it is the process that must truly be called madness, the sickness being only disguise or caricature, or if the sickness is our only madness and the process our only cure. But in any case, the intimate nature of the relationship appears directly in inverse ratio, the more the process of production is led off course, brutally interrupted, the more the schizo as entity arises as a specific product. That is why, on the other hand, we were unable to establish any direct relationship between neurosis and psychosis. The relationships of neurosis, psychosis, and also perversion depend on the situation of each one with regard to the process, and on the manner in which each one represents a mode of interruption of the process, a residual bit of ground to which one still clings so as not to be carried off by the deterritorialized flows of desire. Neurotic territoriality of Oedipus, perverse territorialities of the artifice, psychotic territoriality of the body without organs, sometimes the process is caught in the trap and made to turn about within the triangle, sometimes it takes itself as an end in itself, other times it continues on in the void and substitutes a horrible exasperation for its fulfillment. Each of these forms has schizophrenia as a foundation, schizophrenia as a process is the only universal. Schizophrenia is at once the wall, the breaking through this wall, and the failures of this breakthrough, how does one get through this wall, for it is useless to hit it hard, it has to be undermined and penetrated with a file, slowly and with patience, as I see it. Point 64 What is at stake is not merely art or literature. For either the artistic machine, the analytical machine, and the revolutionary machine will remain in extrinsic relationships that make them function in the deadening framework of the system of social and psychic repression, or they will become parts and cogs of one another in the flow that feeds one and the same desiring machine, so many local fires patiently kindled for a generalized explosion the skis and not the signifier. In capitalizing these terms, we have followed the suggestion of Jacques Lacan's translator, Anthony Wilden, see the language of the self, Baltimore, Johns Hopkins University Press, 1968, p. 15. Nevertheless, it is not because I preach a return to Freud that I am not able to say that totem and taboo is a twisted story. It is in fact for that reason that we must return to Freud. No one helped me to make this known, the formations of the unconscious. I am not saying Oedipus serves no purpose, nor that it, co, bears no relationship with what we do. It serves no purpose for the psychoanalysts, that is indeed true. But since psychoanalysts are assuredly not psychoanalysts, that proves nothing. These are things I set forth in their appropriate time and place, that was a time when I was speaking to people who had to be dealt with tactfully psychoanalysts. On that level, 
I spoke of the paternal metaphor, I have never spoken of an Oedipus complex. Jacques Lacan in a seminar, 1970. Jean-Jacques Abrahams, L'Homo Magnetophone, Dialogue Psychanalytique, Les Temps Modernes, No. 274, April 1969. A, you see, it really isn't so serious, I'm not your father, and I can still shout, of course not. There, that's enough Dr. X, you are imitating your father at this moment. A, of course not, come off it, I'm imitating your father. The one I see in your eyes. Dr. X, you are trying to take the role. A. You can't cure people, you can only palm off your father problems on them problems you can't get away from. And from session to session you drag along your victims that way with your father problem. Dot I was the sick one, you were the doctor. You'd finally reversed your childhood problem of being the child to your father. Dr. X, I was just telephoning extension 609 to make you leave 609, the police, to have you thrown out. Hey, the police. That's it daddy. Your father's a policeman. And you were going to call your father to come get me. What insanity. You got all unnerved, excited, just because I brought out a little device that'll let us understand what's going on here. Sigmund Freud. Analysis Terminable and Interminable, 1937, in Standard Edition of the Complete Psychological Works of Sigmund Freud, ed. James Strachey, New York, Macmillan, London, Hogarth Press, 1964, Volume 23, pages 250-52, the two corresponding themes are in the female, an envy for the penis a positive striving to possess a male genital and, in the male, a struggle against his passive or feminine attitude to another male. At no other point. Does one suffer more from an oppressive feeling that one has been preaching to the winds, than when one is trying to persuade a woman to abandon her wish for a penis on the ground of its being unrealizable or when one is seeking to convince a man that a passive attitude to men does not always signify castration and that it is indispensable in many relationships in life. The rebellious overcompensation of the male produces one of the strongest transference resistances. He refuses to subject himself to a father substitute, or to feel indebted to him for anything, and consequently he refuses to accept his recovery from the doctor. Translators Note, hereafter this source will be cited as standard edition. M.C. and Edmund Ortigs, Oedipi Africaine, CH3, Reference Note 22, P83, in order that the necessary conditions for the existence of a structure in the familial institution or in the Oedipus complex be fulfilled, at least four terms are required that is, one term more than is naturally necessary. C.J. M. Poyer, La Paternite de Dieu, El Inconscient, No. 5, January 1968. This article contains a perfect formulation of Oedipus as double bind, the psychic life of man unfolds in a sort of dialectical tension between two ways of living the Oedipus complex, one that consists in living it, and the other that consists in living according to the structures that might be called Oedipi. Experience also shows us that these structures are not foreign to the most critical phase of this complex. For Freud, man is definitively marked by this complex, it constitutes both his grandeur and his misery, etc. 
pages 57 to 58. The Oedipal personages are all in their places, but in the play of permutations brought about, there is something like an empty place. What appears as rejected is everything referring to the phallus and the father. Each time Georges tries to take hold of himself as a desiring person, he is driven back to a form of dissolution of identities. He is another, enthralled by a maternal image. He remains trapped within an imaginary position in which he is captivated by the maternal imago, he situates himself within the Oedipal triangle in terms of this locale, which implies an impossible process of identification, involving forever after, in the mode of a pure imaginary dialectic, the destruction of one or the other of the partners. Manani. Reference Note 38, pages 104 to 107. Foucault, CH1, Reference Note 43. And it is to this degree that all 19th century psychiatry really converges on Freud, the first man to accept in Aliot's seriousness the reality of the physician patient couple. To the doctor, Freud transferred all the structures Pinel and Tuke had set up within confinement. He did deliver the patient from the existence of the asylum within which his liberators had alienated him, but he did not deliver him from what was essential in this existence, he regrouped its powers, extending them to the maximum by uniting them in the doctor's hands, he created the psychoanalytical situation where, by an inspired short circuit, alienation becomes disalienating because, in the doctor, it becomes a subject. De forces alienance, the French word alienation means both social alienation and what we English speakers call mental derangement. Obviously, the authors aim at discrediting the distinction between the two terms. Translator's Note George Cantor, 1845-1918, a German mathematician known for his theory of transfinite numbers. Translator's Note Perhaps the reader would enjoy this parody of psychoanalytic logic in the author's French, et tu en découvrissement par après que tout c'est le père et la mère, n'a rien d'étonnant, puis qu'on suppose que c'est test le début, mais que c'est ensuite refoot, quid le retro uver après par rapport à ensuite. Translators Note Antonin Artaud, in Zidane la question, in Telkel, number 30, 1967. This child. He is not there. He is but an angle. An angle to come, and there is no angle. And yet it is precisely this world of father-mother which must go away. It is this world, split in two doubled. In a state of constant disunion. Also willing a constant unification. Around which turns the entire system of this world. Maliciously sustained by the most somber organization. Reich, The Function of the Orgasm, p. 112, all neurotic fantasies can be traced back to the child's early sexual relationship to the parents. However, if it were not continually nourished by the contemporary stasis of excitation which it initially produced, the child-parent conflict could not by itself cause a permanent disturbance of the psychic equilibrium. The same remark applies to auto rank, the birth trauma not only implies going further back than Oedipus, and the pre-Oedipal phase, but should also be a means for shortening the cure. Freud notes with bitterness in the beginning of analysis terminable and interminable, 
Rank hoped that if this primal trauma were dealt with by a subsequent analysis the whole neurosis would be got rid of. Thus this one small piece of analytic work would save the necessity for all the rest. A Cartesian devil, or bottle imp, is a small hollow glass figure used in physics. Immersed in a closed vessel of water, it can be made to rise or sink by varying the pressure, and hence the amount of water in the figure. Translator's Note Lang, The Politics of Experience, pages 129, 133, 138, 144. In a closely connected sense Michel Foucault announced, perhaps one day one will no longer know clearly what madness really was. Our Todd will belong to the ground of our language, and not to its rupture. Everything that we experience today in the mode of the limit, or of strangeness, or of the unbearable, will have joined again with the serenity of the positive. And what for us currently designates this exterior stands a chance, one day of designating us. Madness is breaking its kinship ties with mental illness. Madness and mental illness are ceasing to belong to the same anthropological entity, La Folie, L'Absence d'Oeuvre, La Table Ronde, May 1964. Anti-Oedipus. Three Savages, Barbarians, Civilized Men. Translated by Robert Hurley and Mark Seem. 1. The Inscribing Socius. If the universal comes at the end the body without organs and desiring production under the conditions determined by an apparently victorious capitalism, where do we find enough innocence for generating universal history? Desiring production also exists from the beginning, there is desiring production from the moment there is social production and reproduction. But in a very precise sense it is true that pre-capitalist social machines are inherent in desire, they code it, they code the flows of desire. To code desire and the fear, the anguish of decoded flows is the business of the socius. As we shall see, capitalism is the only social machine that is constructed on the basis of decoded flows, substituting for intrinsic codes an axiomatic of abstract quantities in the form of money. Capitalism therefore liberates the flows of desire, but under the social conditions that define its limit and the possibility of its own dissolution, so that it is constantly opposing with all its exasperated strength the movement that drives it toward this limit. At capitalism's limit the deterritorialized socius gives way to the body without organs, and the decoded flows throw themselves into desiring production. Hence it is correct to retrospectively understand all history in the light of capitalism, provided that the rules formulated by Marx are followed exactly. First of all, universal history is the history of contingencies, and not the history of necessity. Ruptures and limits, and not continuity. For great accidents were necessary, and amazing encounters that could have happened elsewhere, or before, or might never have happened, in order for the flows to escape coding and, escaping, to nonetheless fashion a new machine bearing the determinations of the capitalist socius. Thus the encounter between private property and commodity production, which presents itself, however, as two quite distinct forms of decoding, by privatization and by abstraction. Or, from the viewpoint of private property itself, the encounter between flows of convertible wealth owned by capitalists and a flow of workers possessing nothing more than their labor capacity, here again, two distinct forms of deterritorialization. In a sense, 
capitalism has haunted all forms of society, but it haunts them as their terrifying nightmare, it is the dread they feel of a flow that would elude their codes. Then again, if we say that capitalism determines the conditions and the possibility of a universal history, this is true only insofar as capitalism has to deal essentially with its own limit, its own destruction as Marx says, insofar as it is capable of self-criticism, at least to a certain point, the point where the limit appears, in the very movement that counteracts the tendency. In a word, universal history is not only retrospective, it is also contingent, singular, ironic, and critical. The earth is the primitive, savage unity of desire and production. For the earth is not merely the multiple and divided object of labor, it is also the unique, indivisible entity, the full body that falls back on the forces of production and appropriates them for its own as the natural or divine precondition. While the ground can be the productive element and the result of appropriation, the earth is the great unengendered stasis, the element superior to production that conditions the common appropriation and utilization of the ground. It is the surface on which the whole process of production is inscribed, on which the forces and means of labor are recorded, and the agents and the products distributed. It appears here as the quasi-cause of production and the object of desire, it is on the earth that desire becomes bound to its own repression. The territorial machine is therefore the first form of socius, the machine of primitive inscription, the mega-machine that covers a social field. It is not to be confused with technical machines. In its simplest, so-called manual forms, the technical machine already implies an acting, a transmitting, or even a driving element that is non-human, and that extends man's strength and allows for a certain disengagement from it. The social machine, in contrast, has men for its parts, even if we view them with their machines, and integrate them, internalize them in an institutional model at every stage of action, transmission, and motricity. Hence the social machine fashions a memory without which there would be no synergy of man and his, technical, machines. The latter do not in fact contain the conditions for the reproduction of their process, they point to the social machines that condition and organize them, but also limit and inhibit their development. It will be necessary to await capitalism to find a semi-autonomous organization of technical production that tends to appropriate memory and reproduction, and thereby modifies the forms of the exploitation of man, but as a matter of fact, this organization presupposes a dismantling of the great social machines that preceded it. The same machine can be both technical and social, but only when viewed from different perspectives, for example, the clock as a technical machine for measuring uniform time, and as a social machine for reproducing canonic hours and for assuring order in the city. When Lewis Mumford coins the word mega-machine to designate the social machine as a collective entity, he is literally correct, although he limits its application to the barbarian despotic institution if, more or less in agreement with Rulias's classic definition, one can consider the machine to be the combination of solid elements, each having its specialized function and operating under human control in order to transmit a movement and perform a task, then the human machine was indeed a True Machine 1. The social machine is literally a machine, irrespective of any metaphor, inasmuch as it exhibits an immobile motor and undertakes a variety of interventions, flows are set apart, elements are detached from a chain, 
and portions of the tasks to be performed are distributed. Coding the flows implies all these operations. This is the social machine's supreme task, inasmuch as the apportioning of production corresponds to extract ions from the chain, resulting in a residual share for each member, in a global system of desire and destiny that organizes the productions of production, the productions of recording, and the productions of consumption. Flows of women and children, flows of herds and of seed, sperm flows, flows of shit, menstrual flows, nothing must escape coding. The primitive territorial machine, with its immobile motor, the earth, is already a social machine, a mega machine, that codes the lows of production, the flows of means of production of producers and consumers, the full body of the goddess earth gathers to itself the cultivable species, the agricultural implements, and the human organs. Meyer Fortes makes a passing remark that is joyous and refreshingly sound, the circulation of women is not the problem. A woman circulates of herself. She is not at one's disposal, but the juridical rights governing progeniture are determined for the profit of a specific person too. We see no reason in fact for accepting the postulate that underlies exchangist notions of society, society is not first of all a milieu for exchange where the essential would be to circulate or to cause to circulate, but rather a socius of inscription where the essential thing is to mark and to be marked. There is circulation only if inscription requires or permits it. The method of the primitive territorial machine is in this sense the collective investment of the organs, for flows are coded only to the extent that the organs capable respectively of producing and breaking them are themselves encircled, instituted as partial objects, distributed on the socius and attached to it. A mask is such an institution of organs. Initiation societies compose the pieces of a body, which are at the same time sensory organs, anatomical parts, and joints. Prohibitions, see not, speak not, apply to those who, in a given state or on a given occasion, are deprived of the right to enjoy a collectively invested organ. The mythologies sing of organs partial objects and their relations with a full body that repels or attracts them, vaginas riveted on the woman's body, an immense penis shared by the men, an independent anus that assigns itself a body without anus. A Gurma story begins, when the mouth was dead, the other parts of the body were consulted to see which of them would take charge of the burial. The unities in question are never found in persons, but rather in series which determine the connections, disjunctions, and conjunctions of organs. That is why fantasies are group fantasies. It is the collective investment of the organs that plugs desire into the socius and assembles social production and desiring production into a whole on the earth. Our modern societies have instead undertaken a vast privatization of the organs, which corresponds to the decoding of flows that have become abstract. The first organ to suffer privatization, removal from the social field, was the anus. It was the anus that offered itself as a model for privatization, at the same time as money came to express the flow's new state of abstraction. Hence the relative truth of psychoanalytic remarks concerning the anal nature of monetary economy. But the logical order is the following, the substitution of abstract quantity for the coded flows, the resulting collective disinvestment of the organs, on the model of the anus, the constitution of private persons as individual centers of organs and functions derived from the abstract quantity. One is even compelled to say that, 
while in our societies the penis has occupied the position of a detached object distributing lack to the persons of both sexes and organizing the Oedipal triangle, it is the anus that in this manner detaches it, it is the anus that removes and sublimates the penis in a kind of ahibung that will constitute the phallus. Sublimation is profoundly linked to anally, but this is not to say that the latter furnishes a material to be sublimated, for want of another use. Anally does not represent a lower requiring conversion to a higher. It is the anus itself that ascends on high, under the conditions, which we must analyze, of its removal from the field, conditions that do not presuppose sublimation, since on the contrary sublimation results from them. It is not the anal that presents itself for sublimation, it is sublimation in its entirety that is anal, moreover, the simplest critique of sublimation is the fact that it does not by any means rescue us from the shit, only the mind is capable of shitting. Anally is all the greater once the anus is disinvested. The libido is indeed the essence of desire, but when the libido becomes abstract quantity, the elevated and disinvested anus produces the global persons and the specific egos that serve the same quantity as units of measure. Our thought expresses it well, this dead rat's ass suspended from the ceiling of the sky, whence issues the daddy-mommy-me triangle, the uterine mother-father of a frantic Annalie, whose child is only an angle, this kind of covering eternally hanging on something that is the self. The whole of Oedipus is anal and implies an individual overinvestment of the organ to compensate for its collective disinvestment. That is why the commentators most favorable to the universality of Oedipus recognize nonetheless that one does not encounter in primitive societies any of the mechanisms or any of the attitudes that make it a reality in our society. No superego, no guilt. No identification of a specific ego with global persons but group identifications that are always partial, following the compact, agglutinated series of ancestors, and the fragmented series of companions and cousins. No annally although, or rather because, there is a collectively invested anus. What remains then for the making of Oedipus? The structure that is to say, an unrealized potentiality. Are we to believe that a universal Oedipus haunts all societies, but exactly as capitalism haunts them, that is to say, as the nightmare and the anxious foreboding of what might result from the decoding of flows and the collective disinvestment of organs, the becoming abstract of the flows of desire, and the becoming private of the organs. The primitive territorial machine codes flows, invests organs, and marks bodies. To such a degree that circulating exchanging is a secondary activity in comparison with the task that sums up all the others, marking bodies, which are the Earth's products. The essence of the recording, inscribing socius, insofar as it lays claim to the productive forces and distributes the agents of production, resides in these operations, tattooing, excising, incising, carving, scarifying, mutilating, encircling, and initiating. Nietzsche thus defined the morality of mores, the labor performed by man upon himself during the greater part of the existence of the human race, his entire prehistoric labor, Three, a system of evaluations possessing the force of law concerning the various members and parts of the body. Not only is the criminal deprived of organs according to a regime, ordre, of collective investments, not only is the one who has to be eaten, eaten according to social rules as exact as those followed in carving up and apportioning a steer, 
but the man who enjoys the full exercise of his rights and duties has his whole body marked under a regime that consigns his organs and their exercise to the collectivity, the privatization of the organs will only begin with the shame felt by man at the sight of man for. For it is a founding act that the organs be hewn into the socius, and that the flows run over its surface through which man ceases to be a biological organism and becomes a full body, an earth, to which his organs become attached, where they are attracted, repelled, miraculated, following the requirements of a socius. Nietzsche says, it is a matter of creating a memory for man, and man, who was constituted by means of an active faculty of forgetting, bubbly, by means of a repression of biological memory, must create another memory, one that is collective, a memory of words, paroles, and no longer a memory of things, a memory of signs and no longer of effects. This organization, which traces its signs directly on the body, constitutes a system of cruelty, a terrible alphabet. Perhaps indeed there was nothing more fearful and uncanny in the whole prehistory of man than his mnemotechnics, man could never do without blood, torture, and sacrifices when he felt the need to create a memory for himself, the most dreadful sacrifices and pledges, the most repulsive mutilations, the cruelest rites of all the religious cults. One has only to look at our former codes of punishments to understand what effort it costs on this earth to breed a nation of thinkers. 5. Cruelty has nothing to do with some ill-defined or natural violence that might be commissioned to explain the history of mankind, cruelty is the movement of culture that is realized in bodies and inscribed on them, belaboring them. That is what cruelty means. This culture is not the movement of ideology, on the contrary, it forcibly injects product into desire, and conversely, it forcibly inserts desire into social production and reproduction. For even death, punishment, and torture are desired, and are instances of production, compare the history of fatalism. It makes men or their organs into the parts and wheels of the social machine. The sign is a position of desire, but the first signs are the territorial signs that plant their flags in bodies. And if one wants to call this inscription in naked flesh writing, then it must be said that speech in fact presupposes writing, and that it is this cruel system of inscribed signs that renders man capable of language, and gives him a memory of the spoken word. To the primitive territorial machine. The notion of territoriality merely appears ambiguous for if it is taken to mean a principle of residence or of geographic distribution, it is obvious that the primitive social machine is not territorial. Only the apparatus of the state will be territorial in this sense because, following Engel's formula, it subdivides not the people but the territory, and substitutes a geographic organization for the organization of gens. Yet even where kinship seems to predominate over the earth, it is not difficult to show the importance of local ties. This is because the primitive machine subdivides the people, but does so on an indivisible earth where the connective, disjunctive, and conjunctive relations of each section are inscribed along with the other relations, thus, for example, the coexistence or complementarity of the section chief and the guardian of the earth. When the division extends to the earth itself, by virtue of an administration that is landed and residential, this cannot be regarded as a promotion of territoriality, on the contrary, it is rather the effect of the first great movement of deterritorialization on the primitive communes. 
the immanent unity of the earth as the immobile motor gives way to a transcendent unity of an altogether different nature the unity of the state, the full body is no longer that of the earth, it is the full body of the despot, the unengendered, which now takes charge of the fertility of the soil as well as the rain from the sky and the general appropriation of the productive forces. Hence the savage, primitive socius was indeed the only territorial machine in the strict sense of the term. And the functioning of such a machine consists in the following, the declension of alliance and filiation declining the lineages on the body of the earth, before there is a state. If declension characterizes the primitive machine, it is because it is not possible simply to deduce alliance from filiation, the alliances from the filiative lines. It would be erroneous to ascribe to alliance no more than an individuating power over the persons of a lineage, it produces instead a generalized distinguishability. E.R. Leach cites cases of very diverse matrimonial regimes where no difference in filiation can be inferred among the corresponding groups. In many analyses, the stress has been upon ties within the unilineal corporation or between different corporations linked by ties of common descent. The structural ties deriving from marriage between members of different corporations have been largely ignored or else assimilated into the all-important descent concept. Thus Fortes, 1953, while recognizing that ties of affinity have comparable importance to ties of descent, disguises the former under his expression complementary filiation. The essence of this concept, which resembles the Roman distinction between agnation and cognation, is that any ego is related to the kinsman of his two parents because he is the descendant of both parents and not because his parents were married. However the cross ties linking the different patrilineages laterally are not felt by the peoples themselves to be of the nature of descent. The continuity of the structure vertically through time is adequately expressed through the agnatic transmission of a patrilineage name. But the continuity of the structure laterally is not so expressed. Instead, it is maintained by a continuing chain of debt relationships of an economic kind. It is the existence of these outstanding debts which assert the continuance of the affinal relationship 6. Filiation is administrative and hierarchical, but alliance is political and economic, and expresses power insofar as it is not fused with the hierarchy and cannot be deduced from it, and the economy insofar as it is not identical with administration. Filiation and alliance are like the two forms of a primitive capital, fixed capital or filiative stock, and circulating capital or mobile blocks of debts. There are two memories that correspond to them, the one biofiliative, the other a memory of alliance and of words. While production is recorded in the network of filiative disjunctions on the socius, the connections of labor still must detach themselves from the productive process and pass into the element of recording that appropriates them for itself as quasi-cause. But it can accomplish this only by reclaiming the connective regime for its own in the form of an affinal tie or a pairing of persons that is compatible with the disjunctions of filiation. It is in this sense that the economy goes by way of alliance. In the production of children, the child is inscribed in relation to the disjunctive lines of its father or mother, but inversely, the disjunctive lines inscribe it only through a connection represented by the marriage of the father and the mother. At no time, therefore, does alliance derive from filiation, but both form an essentially open cycle where the socius acts on production, but also where production reacts on the socius. Marxists are right to remind us that if kinship is dominant in primitive society, 
it is determined as dominant by economic and political factors. And if filiation expresses what is dominant while being itself determined, alliance expresses what is determinant, or rather the return of the determinant in the determinate system of dominance. That is why it is essential to take into consideration how ties of alliance combine concretely with relations of filiation on a given territorial surface. Leach has specifically underscored the importance of local lineages insofar as they are differentiated from lineages of filiation, and insofar as they operate at the level of small segments, it is these groups of men residing in the same area, or in neighboring areas, who arrange marriages and shape concrete reality to a much greater extent than do the systems of filiation and the abstract matrimonial classes. A kinship system is not a structure but a practice, a praxis, a method, and even a strategy. Lewis Baird, analyzing a relationship of alliance and hierarchy, shows convincingly that a village intervenes as a third party to permit matrimonial connections between elements that the disjunction of two moieties would forbid from the strict viewpoint of structure, the third term must be interpreted much more as a method than as a true structural element. Every time one interprets kinship relations in the primitive commune in terms of a structure unfolding in the mind, one relapses into an ideology of large segments that makes alliance depend on the major filiations, and that finds itself contradicted by practice. It is necessary to ask if there exists in the asymmetrical systems of alliance a fundamental tendency toward generalized exchange, that is to say, toward the closing of the cycle. I have been unable to find anything of that nature among the Mru. Everyone behaves as if he were, ignorant of the compensation that would result from the closing of the cycle, and everyone stresses the relationship of asymmetry, emphasizing the creditor-debtor behavior 7. A kinship system only appears closed to the extent that it is severed from the political and economic references that keep it open, and that make alliance something other than an arrangement of matrimonial classes and filiative lineages. It is the same for the whole project of coding the flows. How does one ensure reciprocal adaptation, the respective embrace of a signifying chain and flows of production? The great nomad hunter follows the flows, exhausts them in place, and moves on with them to another place. He reproduces in an accelerated fashion his entire filiation, and contracts it into a point that keeps him in a direct relationship with the ancestor or the god. Pierre Clas Trace describes the solitary hunter who becomes identical with his force and his destiny, and delivers his song in a language that becomes increasingly rapid and distorted, me, 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 I am a powerful nature, a nature incensed and aggressive, hate. Such are the two characteristics of the hunter, the great paranoiac of the bush or the forest, real displacement with the flows and direct filiation with the god. It has to do with the nature of nomadic space, where the full body of the socius is as if adjacent to production, it has not yet brought production under its sway. The space of the encampment remains adjacent to that of the forest, it is constantly reproduced in the process of production, but has not yet appropriated this process. The apparent objective movement of inscription has not suppressed the real movement of nomadism. But a pure nomad does not exist, there is always and already an encampment where it is a matter of stocking however little and where it is a matter of inscribing and allocating, of marrying, and of feeding oneself. CLAS Trace shows well how, among the Guayaki, 
the connection between the hunters and the living animals is succeeded in the encampment by a disjunction between the dead animals and the hunters a disjunction similar to an incest prohibition, since the hunter cannot consume his own kill. In short, as we shall see elsewhere, there is always a pervert who succeeds the paranoiac or accompanies him sometimes the same man in two situations, the bush paranoiac and the village pervert. Once the socius becomes fixed, falling back on the productive forces and appropriating them for its own, the problem of coding can no longer be resolved by the simultaneity of a displacement from the standpoint of the flows, and an accelerated reproduction from the standpoint of the chain.